we stand astride the 100th anniversary of Prohibition. What was Prohibition? The 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution passed by the U.S. Congress in 1917 and ratified by the required three-quarters of state legislatures in 1919. It went into effect in 1920. From 1920 to 1933, this amendment banned the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcohol. Wine for religious ceremonies was permitted, as was the use of alcohol for medicinal purposes. Possession and consumption of alcohol on the part of individuals was permitted throughout the period of prohibition, so long as said individuals didn't produce the alcohol themselves or purchase it. <laughs> People are creative and resourceful. Uh, it's interesting to talk about prohibition both uh, as a vast social and political experiment uh, it's also very interesting to discuss prohibition for what it reveals about American society in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. And in my time tonight, I'd like to address both those dimensions of this topic. I want to ask uh, three questions uh, and answer them for you. Uh, one, why a constitutional amendment to ban alcohol? Why not just a law? Secondly, why did it pass when it did in the period 1917 to 1919? And third, what were the effects of prohibition, both intended and unintended? The first, why a constitutional amendment? I need to talk to you for a moment about America's system of government. The American system of government is really two systems of government. It's the federal government based in Washington, D.C., and the government of the then 48 states based in the state capitals of those states. The Constitution was very clear that the powers of the federal central government were to be limited. If the federal government uh, was to have a power, it had to be enumerated and mentioned in the Constitution adopted in 1789 or in one of the amendments subsequently adopted. If a power was not clearly enumerated and given to the federal government, it resided with the states. Well, there is, as you might imagine, nothing in the 1789 Constitution about alcohol or prohibition. The framers of the Constitution had other things on their minds, and they probably liked their drink too much as well. Uh, so, the federal government had no power to pass a law uh, restricting the sale of alcohol. This was considered to be an element of morality. Morality was not touched by the original U.S. Constitution, and thus it was reserved for the states. Various states and sometimes counties and municipalities have been passing prohibition legislation for years. If you wanted to involve the federal government in regulating drink, you had to amend the Constitution. Why did this pass in the years 1917 to 1919? Drink in America, I can assure you, was not then a new problem. 
One historian has referred to the United States of the 19th century as the alcoholic republic. <laughs> Huge amounts of beer and whiskey in the north and bourbon in the south were being consumed all the time. There were always temperance advocates. Protestant churches were often teetotaling strongholds. But these temperance forces had never been sufficient to achieve a national ban on alcohol. Amendments are extraordinarily hard things to do in America. There have been only 27 amendments in the 231 years in which America has been living under its 1789 Constitution. If we remove the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, which is really part of the original Constitution, and if we remove the three Civil War amendments, which put the country together after its devastating Civil War in the middle of the 19th century, that takes a 27 down 13, 14 amendments across 231 years. Having the oldest written Constitution in the world is not always a blessing because it's a document that's very hard to change. If you want to change the Constitution, you first have to get two-thirds of the House of Representatives to vote a law to change it. Then you've got to get two-thirds of the Senate. And then you've got to get three-quarters of the state legislatures in the country to approve what Congress has approved. I only need to ask you this question. Would Brexit have passed if that standard had been applied to that question? I think we all know the answer to that question. The Constitution was meant to be a document that was incredibly hard to change. And it could not be done very often. Uh, and, there, and American history is littered with proposed amendments that were never approved. So why, in this moment, 1917 to 1919, does prohibition pass? I want to talk to you about three reasons. One, a new kind of gender politics. Secondly, the matter of the Great War. And thirdly, uh, the extraordinary diversity in American society. The new gender politics. This was the time of a swelling women's movement committed to universal suffrage. There was not then the vote for women in America. It was achieved by its own constitutional amendment in 1919 and went into effect in 1920. This women's movement is committed not just to equality, but to moralizing American politics. The conviction among many women is that men had made a mess of a lot of things, including politics. And part of their activity and their insistence on the vote was their determination to clean it up. The conviction was widespread among politically active women on the brink of one of their greatest victories, women's suffrage. That drink was not simply damaging to politics in general. It was damaging to marriage, and it was damaging to families. Men stood accused of consuming their paychecks in all-male saloons and then coming home penniless and drunk and then behaving abusively. This was part of the women's campaign for equality and the women's campaign to make their voices heard in 
American politics. The second reason swelling anti-German sentiment in American society as America enters World War I on the side of the English and French in 1917. The Germans in America, both those who immigrated from Germany and those who were German Americans born on American soil, second and third generation, were at the time the largest immigrant group in American society. Until World War I, they were among the highest regarded immigrant group. In order to mobilize the United States for war in a situation where many Americans did not want to go to war, the good German immigrant had to be turned into the dreaded Hun, militaristic, beastly, barbaric. And sitting in this vast German and German-American population was the brewery industry of the Midwest, which seemed to be almost universally dominated by German immigrants. The Germans were brewing America's beer. I only have to mention Budweiser to get you to think about the connection between German immigrants and beer in America. And the accusation begins to be made that Ger German brewers in the Midwest were plying the American doughboy, a term for the World War I soldier, with beer, and they were sapping his willingness to fight the Hun in the Great War. So the German brewers stood accused of being a fifth column, a critical aid to the German army in the heart of America giving their beer away for cheap or free so that American soldiers would spend all their time drinking and whooping it up and thus, be, and thus perform disastrous, disastrously on the field of battle. The fear of German disloyalty spreads to other immigrant groups. The immigrant presence in American society at this time was huge. Between 1820 and 1920, approximately 35 million immigrants came to American society. And this society totaled only 75 million people in 1900. So think about 35 million people across a century entering a society that numbered only 75 million in 1900. The cities of the Northeast and the Midwest where immigrants concentrated, this was the industrial heartland of America, this was the industrial dy dynamo. In these cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, immigrants and their children constituted anywhere from 40 to 70% of the population. The immigrant presence was dense. Uh, it was much denser than the immigrant presence in the America today or in the UK. Most of the immigrants came from Europe, but this was not an assurance to those who had been in America for a long time. Because long, residents America, long resident Americans, Americans whose families had been there for a long time, were predominantly Protestant. Most of the immigrants of the early 20th century were Catholic, Christian Orthodox, or Jewish. They were not Protestant. Most of them were urban, laboring in America's expanding industrial economy. The Catholic and Orthodox Christian churches were not generally interested in persuading their parishioners to abandon alcohol. They deemed other problems, poverty, ethnic discrimination, 
religious discrimination to be more pressing, and they resented Protestant efforts to imp impose Protestant morals on them. Ten years prior to 1917 and 1918, Protestants in America had possessed confidence that they could manage the assimilation of Catholic, Christian, Orthodox, and Jewish immigrants into American society on their terms, meaning Protestant terms. By 1918, 1919, and 1920, that confidence was gone. World War I had intensified division and discord uh, in American society. Urban America seemed too large, too powerful, and too volatile to manage through persuasion. Immigrants, it was now felt, had to be coerced into becoming proper Americans. Drastic steps like constitutional amendments and later draconian measures to restrict immigration were now required. Prohibition speaks to this loss of faith in persuasion and the turn to coercion. We can begin to see then the broad array of forces propelling prohibition. Women asserting their voice in politics, the equation of beer with the dreaded Hun, and the fear on the part of Protestants everywhere that the America that they so loved, Protestant, agrarian, Republican, Republican with a small r, meaning a place where the people were sovereign, the feeling was that this America was being overwhelmed by foreigners who might not be faithful to America's fragile experiment in democracy. What were the effects of prohibition? Well, the first question would be, did alcohol consumption decline? It did. For many Americans, especially poor ones, alcohol became harder to procure. But demand remained strong, and those who had the resources were willing to pay more. There was money to be made in illicit sales of alcohol in America during Prohibition. And thus, another effect of Prohibition is that organized crime prospers. Urban gangs, often Italian, Irish, and Jewish, discerned opportunity in the illegal alcohol trade. They developed foreign and offshore suppliers. Canada's vast land border with the United States, a mere 3,000 miles long, came in particularly handy. America's 1,500-mile Atlantic shoreline was also conducive to smuggling. Ships would hover with their booze just beyond the territorial waters of the United States, waiting for small and fast boats to make their runs. The U.S. government was aware of much of this illegal activity, but the National Police Force, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was new, it was small, and it was weak. It had a force of 1,500 agents to police the drinking habits of a 110 million person nation. Let me repeat that, 1,500 agents to police the drinking habits of a 110 million person nation. Al Capone, the most famous, notorious, dreaded figure in organized crime, whose gang was the biggest in terms of moving alcohol, 
his organized crime army was bigger than what the FBI mustered. And although we can't ascertain this with any certainty, it was probably better armed. Which is one reason why organized crime gained the upper hand and why law and order in America's cities began to break down. Tens of thousands of policemen in America's cities were on the take, paid to look the other way, as alcohol was being moved, bought, sold, and consumed. If cops were involved, politicians are probably involved too, because the links between the police and urban politicians is invariably close and thick. There's a porous boundary between gangs and urban politics. And someone who sat on that porous boundary was a political man with a lot of ambitions in the city of Boston by the name of Joseph P. Kennedy. And one of his claims to building his fortune was his ability to traffic in illicit alcohol throughout the period of prohibition and the funds that he amassed through this trade positioned himself to make his family, the Kennedy family, one of the richest in the Northeast, a platform that he then used to propel his various sons into national politics, including his second son, John F. Kennedy, who became president in 1960. This is an example of money being made in prohibition by people straddling illicit and illicit worlds. You might ask, um, why did the United States undertake this vast experiment in social engineering without devising an adequate enforcement machinery for it? I mean, if you're going to do prohibition, do prohibition. It's a hard question to answer. Part of the answer is uh, the continuing attachment in America to a small centralized government. The framers of the Constitution wanted the federal government to be weak, except in times of war, and so it was. After America ended its involvement in World War I, the big government it had built for the war, it largely dismantled. Another problem lay in the illusion that moral zeal alone, declaring prohibition to be the law of the land, by itself would suffice. But that is an illusion. It was not enough. Another effect is that the milieu in which people were drinking began to change. It did become more dangerous to drink brazenly in public. The all-male saloon, roughly equivalent to the pub, shriveled, didn't quite die, but it lost its central place in American culture. Drinking did have to be camouflaged in some way. Clandestine speakeasies sprouted, watering holes hidden in nightclubs, dance halls, and just behind storefronts. Deprived of their traditional ability to drink and carouse exclusively with each other, men turned to substitute forms of sociability now involving women. Nights out became heterosocial to a degree to which they had not been before. Dating, dancing, Canoodling, you might think this is a benefit of prohibition. Get the men out of those 
saloons and mix it up with the women. Drink continued to be an important component of these nights out, but not the sole reason for assembling. Drinking also moved into the home in a big way. The 1920s are known as the decade of companionate marriage, a term historians talk about new relations between men and women who were married. Marriage was not simply about love or reproduction. It was about having your spouse be your best companion. You would read books together. You would go to lectures together. You would do all sorts of things that you wouldn't have done together 20 or 30 years earlier. This was a new way of uh, being married. So men and women also became companions in drink the way they had not been before. And this is the moment when the cocktail appears in the home. Honey, can I fix you a drink before dinner? This did not really exist before the 1920s when much of the drinking was done much more in public. And so there's a privatization of drinking and drinking together, men and women achieving a kind of equal opportunity for consumption and tipsiness and letting the chicken burn in the oven becomes another product of prohibition, unintended, yet very interesting and, and enduring. So that my parents and my wife's parents, no longer living, were heirs to this cocktail tradition, having no idea themselves that this was invented really around the time that they had been born. I also want to say something about the advent of NASCAR stock car racing. I don't know if any of you are st stock car fans, um, probably not a lot, but it's a, it's a big sport in the US, especially in the American South. It began at this time because the Appalach Appalachian Mountains, uh, which run uh, north and south or from the northeast to the southwest in the eastern part of the country, uh, heavily settled uh, by people in the U.S. who are called Scotch-Irish. They were Scottish Protestants, often spending time in Ireland before coming to America. The Appalachians were a very isolated part of the country, so they reserved, uh, uh, they maintained their traditions for a very long time and accepted no law other than that which they promulgated themselves. So prohibition was not something that they were going to honor, particularly. They had been drinking their whiskey for a long time, and damn it, they were going to continue doing it. They did have to outwit the local sheriff, and uh, they were making a lot of whiskey, sometimes called bootleg whiskey and sometimes called moonshine. You had to be careful. You had to know which of the moonshine to drink and which to give to your enemy because it would rot your insides. Uh, they began to build cars that could outrun the local sheriffs. And this was the origins of the stock car, stock car referring to stock cars that automobile manufacturers are making. These are not racing cars. So on the outside, they look like ordinary cars that you would uh, go to a showroom to buy. But inside, they began to have these incredibly souped-up engines, super-powered machines that could outrace the sheriff, and this comes to characterize Appalachian life in the 1920s or 30s. So prohibition changes American leisure activities. The cocktail and the Daytona 500, we might say, 
both originate as unintended consequences of the prohibition experiment. More seriously, pro prohibition also intensifies America's culture war. On one side stood the wets, they were called that at the time, understood as urban, immigrant, non-Protestant, cosmo cosmopolitan, and fierce in their determination to uphold personal liberty, meaning the opportunity to live one's life as one saw fit, as a sacred American right. On the other side stood the dries, understood as rural or small town, native born, Protestant, agrarian, and prizing public morals more than personal liberty. The battle between these two sides expressed, expressed itself in various ways, North versus South, Catholic versus Protestant, urban versus rural, secular versus evangelical, prizing cultural diversity versus prizing cultural homogeneity, open borders in terms of admitting immigrants versus closed borders, jazz versus country music, both inventions of the 1920s, and wet versus dry. Let me emphasize for a moment the depths of Catholic Protestant antagonism in the United States. Since that antagonism doesn't exist anymore, and when I was teaching university in the United States, I had trouble getting students in America to take this division seriously. Uh, and it's interesting that it has ceased to matter because it mattered enormously during the decade of prohibition. America still saw itself as, at the time as a Protestant errand into the wilderness. This goes back to the Puritan settlers of Southeast England who left England and Holland to go to the United States, what became New England in the 1600s, convinced that England had become so corrupt it was no longer redeemable, and that they had to carry on a Puritan experiment in the wilderness in all its purity, create a space from which a true Protestant faith would one day regenerate itself and go back out into the world to defeat what they regarded as the Antichrist, which was the papacy and Catholicism. So an important part of America from the moment of its founding sees itself as committed to a Protestant mission. And throughout American history, the battles between Protestants and Catholics are intense. And America is, it was, and it remains an extremely religious society, much more religious a society than Britain is today, America being much more religious than, America, than Britain is today. So this is a religious society in which these antagonisms uh, were taking root. And prohibition sits at the middle of this. 
and many long-settled Protestants who consider themselves the true heirs to the Founding Fathers and the Puritans are facing a country that looks nothing like what those original Protestant settlers wanted America to be. It's not rural, it's not Protestant, it's not devout in the right way. Uh, and this antagonism between Protestant and Catholics is intense. And the Catholics and the Christian Orthodox are seen as being in urban areas. So they are not only transforming the religion of America, they are transforming America from a rural to an urban nation, taking America away from its agrarian roots. Now this division between Protestant and Catholic ran right through the center of the Democratic Party. Between 1860 and 1928, this party, the Democratic Party, had elected only two presidents, Grover Cleveland and Woodrow Wilson. Two presidents between 1860 and 1928. The battles between warring factions of the Democratic Party had a lot to do with that massive political failure. In July 1924, the Democrats gathered in Madison Square Garden in New York City to nominate a president to oppose Calvin Coolidge, just nominated by the Republican Party. And the Republican Party had the presidency at this time. Al Smith, governor of New York and a product of New York City, represented the wets, Catholics, cities, and cosmopolitanism. Al Smith was Irish-American, Catholic, and proud of it. With his ever-present brown Darby, cigar, and rasping New York accent, wrote one historian, Smith was everything rural America hated and feared. William McAdoo, Woodrow Wilson, ardently dry and Protestant, represented the white South of the Democratic Party, and he was endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, an endorsement McAdoo ref refused to disavow. This was a moment when the Klan was reborn. The Klan first appeared as a white supremacist organization in the 1860s and 1870s to deny African Americans equality in the southern states where most resided, and they were willing to use terror to enforce their aims. The Klan somewhat dies out in the late 19th and early 20th century, but is reborn in the second decade of the 20th century, right around the time that the forces for prohibition are gathering. And it has in its crosshairs not just blacks in the South or blacks in the North. It has in its crosshairs Catholic, Christian Orthodox, and Jewish immigrants who they see as betraying America's true Protestant character. The Democratic Convention assembled to nominate a candidate in 1924 deadlocks over these two candidates, Al Smith and William McAdoo. Neither is able to amass the 732 delegates, two-thirds of the total, necessary to secure the nomination. 
The first ballot on the 30th of June failed to produce a winner. So did the fifth ballot. So did the 10th ballot. So did the 20th ballot. So did the 50th ballot. So did the 75th ballot. So did the 100th ballot. Balloting went on for an interminable two weeks, almost as long as an election season in the United Kingdom. They're just trying to nominate a candidate so they can have an election. This is going on in the, hardest part of the hottest part of the year. New York City's heat wave by day, day by day, making Madison Square Garden not adequately cleansed of the animal droppings after the circus had departed in late June, an unbearably fetid place. By July 4th, 20,000 Klansmen had assembled across the Hudson River and nearby New Jersey, donning white robes to march in torchlight parades and beating to a pulp an effigy of Al Smith cradling a bottle of whiskey. Finally, on the 9th of July, 1924, and on the 103rd ballot, the two camps gave up, both sides agreeing to withdraw their candidates in favor of a compromise candidate who nobody liked. Needless to say, this compromise candidate, John W. Davis, was trounced by Coolidge in the general election of 1924. Once again, the Democratic Party had destroyed itself through this fighting. Watching all this was a man by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who had chosen the 1924 convention as his moment to re-enter Democratic Party politics. After his polio had left him bedridden for years and paralyzed him from the waist down for life. Roosevelt was a cousin of Theodore Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt was. A tall, athletic, ambitious man wanted to follow in Theodore Roosevelt's footsteps and was doing so, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, hoping to become governor of New York. He was doing it in the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. And then this man, so full of energy and ambition and athleticism, was cut down by this terrible and dreaded disease, was near death, spent two years bedridden, and finally found some inner strength and resolve to will him, and with his wife, Eleanor, to will himself back to some kind of health. And 1924 is the time when he chooses to reenter the Democratic Party. He's imagining this as a triumphant return, as much for him as for Al Smith, the man whose name he was putting in nomination. One of the memories that people have of the 24 convention is Franklin Roosevelt determined to walk alone with these crutches, with these braces that went from his waist to his toes, each probably weighing 15 pounds, struggling with the utmost 
determination and difficulty to cross a few steps to the lectern so he could give his speech standing up. And it was a hell of a speech, even though it didn't help Al Smith at that time. I'm telling you this story because Franklin Roosevelt resolved that should he become president, he was going to purge his party of its culture war. Thus, among his first acts upon being elected president in November 1932, was to pressure Congress into passing a bill repealing prohibition. This could only happen in the form of a second constitutional amendment to nullify the prohibition amendment itself. The only way to get rid of one amendment, now part of the Constitution, is to pass a second amendment, nullifying the first. Congress complied, passing the repeal law in February 1933. Even before Roosevelt had assumed office, presidents then assumed office in March, not as currently the case in January. The states ratified this amendment in record time, and prohibition was officially repealed in December 1933. The noble experiment of prohibition came to a sudden end. The repeal of prohibition had the intended effect of easing America's culture war and allowing the two antagonistic wings of the Democratic Party to coexist. Roosevelt, during his four terms in office, was able to put in place a period of democratic domination of American politics that lasted 40 years. And a lot of his ability to do so rested on his ability to quell the forces that the culture war, egged on by prohibition, had released. FDR did everything he could to keep culture out of New Deal politics. The severity of the Great Depression cutting across all regions and cultures in the United States facilitated this reconciliation between North and South, Protestant and Catholic. So did World War II. But FDR's searing experience at the 1924 convention, as searing in its own way as his encounter with polio had been, helped him to understand that the Democratic Party would only succeed if it executed a truce between its warring cultural tribes. That understanding may be something that today's Democrats want to keep in mind as they head for the immensely consequential election of 2020. America has not left its cultural wars behind. The question is, as it has been in the past, what role will those culture wars play in American politics? The experience of prohibition gives us some important insight into that all-important question. Thank you very much.